Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited about the guests that we have today, you know, joining us from Startup Nation. You know, obviously founders there are like absolutely incredible and I love founders that come from Startup Nation. So we're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, exiting, open source, you name it. I think that you're going to find this episode very inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Yuri Kolotny. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Alejandro. So originally born in Israel, you know, there. How was life growing up? Give us a little of a walk through memory lane. Uh, life growing up uh, was actually quite cool. Uh, Jerusalem in the 70s. Um, my parents are academics, so over the years, a bunch of years spent in the U.S. on sabbaticals. Um, and then sort of the quintessential Israeli uh, experience of being in the military service, an undergrad um, at the Hebrew U in, in Jerusalem studying computer science and um, and then went on to a business school in the U.S. and basically got busy entrepreneurship. So business school in the U.S., why coming to the U.S.? What triggered that? Oh, that's a terrific question. So I, I was actually considering business school. So I, I had an undergrad in, 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 in CS and I, I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. And uh, I spoke to a family friend who was still is actually teaching uh, business at, at the Stanford Business School. And, uh, and he said, look, the intellectual content of an MBA you can pick up by reading old issues of Business Week when you go to the dentist. But, uh, you know, the networking and all that is, is, is quite something. And it sort of, you know, exactly, it happened exactly that way, meaning it, it was, uh, you know, I got, I'm, I'm old enough to say intellectually it was underwhelming. I, I was hoping for some, something a little deeper in terms of content. But I came away from, from the whole experience with sort of exactly what I was hoping for. I mean, I came out of business. In fact, I spent my second year of business school starting my first company. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about that because, you know, you go there, obviously the content, as you were saying, was saying underwhelming. But at least you got out what you wanted. You know, you got, you know, the uh, perhaps the path forward. So at what point does it become evident that starting your own business is the next thing, ideal chapter after, you know, MIT? Oh, uh, no, no. It, it was, this was apparent to me for years before that, that this is what I want to do. I, I have no idea why. I really don't know why. Uh, my dad is an academic. My grandfather was sort of, you know, one could say an entrepreneur. Um, I don't know why. I, I just wanted to. I think I'm sort of always optimized for independence. And I think that my perception is that as an entrepreneur, you have a fair bit of independence. And that matters to so me then, a lot. So, so then obviously it was apparent, but uh, I guess it was the, the push that you needed to come out of MIT. And, and, and perhaps, you know, that's what got you to uh, get going with OmniGuide, your first company. So yeah. what were you guys doing with OmniGuide? So I, I, um, I met a fellow Israeli who uh, at the time was uh, at graduate school, uh, in graduate school at, at, uh, at MIT, um, and has been a professor there for many years since. Um, and basically, we, we decided to commercialize his, uh, his doctoral thesis, his PhD work, and developed an, a hollow core optical fiber. Uh, and um, first, you know, we focused on telecom applications. 
And then we pivoted, I guess, well before we, we or others were using the word pivot. In 2002, when the optical communications bubble burst, we pivoted to a medical device company and, uh, and brought a product to market. So that was my first sort of entrepreneurial experience. And obviously a different time, no, because uh, the early 2000s, you know, you guys raised some money there too. And I'm sure it was absolutely different to the, you know, the landscape now of being able to raise and how the, the perception is about hyper growth companies and the way that you're plugging in the network from the investors and the value that they bring to the table. So how was it like dealing with VCs back then? Um, it was quite vicious. Uh, the Boston scene it was very different from today. And I think sort of the, the, I think Facebook, if sort of, I have to look back, Facebook and, you know, and Mark Zuckerberg and flip-flops and a hoodie and, and all that, that sort of changed the power, maybe Y Combinator changed the power dynamics between VCs and entrepreneurs. But back then, yeah, you know, you had to bend the knee and the, the Boston VCs were uh, really sort of obsessive in terms of their desire to control uh, your business in, in sort of very fundamental ways. We were fortunate enough to get uh, seed funding from Race Data, who started analog devices. And, um, and that was a very different experience for us in that regard, meaning that that was sort of the most patient and, and intelligent and thoughtful investor one could hope to have on, on your board. And so for me, as sort of a young entrepreneur, that was uh, really a wonderful sort of learning opportunity. Well, hey, first company, first exit. So, um, so not bad. Reaching the finish line is the promised land, you know, oh, an exit is always an exit. So I guess for you, especially what kind of, um, I mean, you, you guys ended up selling the company to a PE firm after about six, six, six and change years of running this business. So what kind of visibility would you say that it gave you being able to now have an exit and having gone through the whole cycle of ideation, product market fit, raising money, scaling, and finally you're reaching the finish line. It was my first experience hiring people, you know, and, and, and sort of this magical experience of trying to persuade very talented people that they want to drop whatever it is they're doing and join you as opposed to the many, many other options they have in front of them. So that was sort of that was fun and building sort of a, a team and a culture around that place. That was fun. The fundraising stuff, I didn't like one bit, but you know, you have to know that you have to learn that and, and you learn sort of the hard way. And now there are a lot of entrepreneurs who come you know, to seek sort of my, my input and my thoughts on, on their fundraising efforts and all that. And, you know, by merit of having gone through all these fairly painful experiences back then, uh, so if you learn the hard way, you know, you know, that liquidation preferences deeply matter, right? And that this isn't some uh, notion that you read on a Wikipedia page. This is something that sort of determines the outcome of your company. Um, so all these things, you know, I learned at the time. I also learned, you know, the, the importance of, of uh, you know, the match between co-founders, I think, how, that, how important that is. And the dynamics between the co-founding team and how does it, you know, how is it impacted by people being full-time or not full-time, you know, the different levels of sort of, uh, of incentives and, and focus that that brings to the table. So there were a lot of learning that, that came out of that. But uh, your next day journey with Timna, you know, as they say, you either succeed or you learn, right? 
And with Tim now, obviously, it was not the desired outcome that you guys had hoped for, and the company ended up. Uh... Oh no, no, I, I yeah, I, I, I've had way more failures than successes over the years, and every sort of dimension that you you can think of, and so in that regard, Timna was one more uh, form of failure. Uh, I was uh, hoping to commercialize a different form of research that came out of uh, the same. Uh, my, my OmniGuide co-founder's lab at MIT, his name is Yoel Fink, and we were hoping to commercialize uh, another event, invention of his. I'd, I'd moved back to Israel, and um, we were hoping to do this in the medical device field, and after a good chunk of time, 12 or 18 months, we concluded this, this just doesn't have the, uh, we don't see the, 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 uh, the path forward in terms of uh, product and, and business model and just doesn't compute. So uh, we put that on ice. So then what happened next? So then there was this whole clean tech thing uh, that was starting up. And um, so I guess at this point, it's pretty obvious looking at my uh, uh, career path. I, I've, I've done a whole bunch of very different things in terms of, uh, of the underlying technology and the markets and all that. And I, I think I, I'm fairly easy to sort of find interest and excitement in, in stuff. I, I like hard problems. I like hard problems on the technology side. Uh, I've given it a fair bit of thought over the years, you know, why, why am I attracted to this? Uh, so if, you know, if we turn this into, uh, if you charge me, I don't know what the going rate is, uh, three or $400 an hour for a shrink session. But, you know, I think this is me compensating for the fact that I didn't get a proper education. No, not a PhD in, in some uh, in some formal discipline. Um, so I, I'm I'm attracted to these topics and to the, the people who are sort of one aggregates around these very difficult problems and challenges. So clean tech felt to me like that kind of thing, and I decided to join. Uh, I worked with two venture funds as an entrepreneur in residence for a few months, um, and um, but. We, we were hoping to license some IP from Technion in Israel uh, for a particular project. And that was the first time I, I encountered a wildly rational licensing office. Many years later, I encountered the same licensing office uh, being equally irrational. So, so uh, we, you know, we didn't come to uh, an understanding, and we decided to put the whole thing once again on ice, and I moved on. Okay. Now... When when you did Mondria, you really experienced their open source. So I'm sure that you learned quite a bit too on open source versus patents. So what was that ex whole experience with Mondria and what did you learn you know, around open source as well? Yeah, no, so Mondria ended up as an open source project, but but Mondria was, was different from, from a different perspective in, in that it was, uh, it was for, the, for the most part, self-funded. And going through that experience, I think was sort of uh, a reaction to the challenges of, of uh, my, my negative experiences previously in sort of the venture-backed companies. And I thought that there's something really sort of very attractive about, you know, about the, the discipline and sort of uh, frugality and, and uh, independence of a venture, of a, of a self-funded company. And, um, there are also many disadvantages to that uh, that I experienced there. Uh, and the obvious one is, of course, limited resources. 
But beyond that, um, and I think we fell down that uh, particular pothole, is the fact that you are accountable only to yourself. And given the sort of the cast of characters, you could end up sort of optimizing for the wrong things. And we optimized for the wrong things. And we were perpetually building um, the perfect thing instead of sort of going out there and engaging the world and sort of iterating fast. And, and in, in hindsight, you look at this and you say, you know, what were we thinking? In real time, you're always saying, no, 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 the, you know, it's just past that hill and, and then and then the landscape will open up and then everything will be beautiful and, and, and powerful and efficient and fast and not. And I remember sort of talking to, uh, to my sister about this uh, at the time and, and, and I said that, you know, this, this, the independence that comes with self-funding is it's something you know, that we want to explore, you know, what does that offer us in terms of, uh, and she, she, she wisely said, you, you seem to be unable to do anything but explore that. Um, and I thought that was very, very insightful that, that, um, that somehow stood in our way to, uh, to at, at least to fail quickly, if not to, to uh, yeah. succeed. Move fast, fail quickly. Yeah. 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 Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when i met my co-founder at pantera mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Let's talk about exploring because obviously now you finally, you know, launched what has been probably your biggest success to date. Mm -hmm. I mean, what you guys are doing with Starkware is pretty amazing. So how do you come across the problem and why did you guys think that it made sense, that it was a problem that was meaningful enough to tackle it and, and to bring the solution to cover it? So back in, say, 2015, Eli Ben-Sasson, my, my old, old and close friend uh, of 35 years, came to me and said, let's start a company around my research at Technion. He was working on, he, he had been working on zero knowledge proofs for, uh, at that point, 
over 15 years. Zero knowledge proofs is this field in theoretical computer science that was like completely theoretical when we were undergrads in the mid 90s. And then over the years, through the hard work of many, including Eli, became increasingly practical and applicative. And, he's, and he was one of the founding scientists of Zcash, which is uh, one of like the, the OG projects of, in the blockchain space. Um, and there the focus was on using zero-knowledge proofs for privacy. And we wanted to start Starkware. And the initial sort of impetus was just we didn't want to sort of create personal tension and, and use the technology. was his latest and greatest technology, which is uh, called Starks. And we didn't want to sort of end up competing with Zcash. We just thought that that doesn't sort of, that's not the right thing to do. It's not the fair and right thing to do. So he said, let's, you know, let's look elsewhere. And pretty much instantly realized that uh, using zero-knowledge proofs for scaling is a very, very, very sort of interesting match where you find like this field of research that seemed to have nothing to do with uh, the scaling of blockchains, in fact, with blockchains prior to Zcash. Uh, sort of now meeting the needs of, uh, of permissionless blockchains, which, which have. What is it different about blockchain? What is the difference there? So, so blockchains are far worse than existing software systems in every possible way, except for the fact that they can be uh, completely trustless. Okay. And so in order to get that trustlessness and the, the full decentralization, meaning the ability not to rely on any centralized party, Facebook or Google or whatnot, um, you give up on almost every other dimension of the network in terms of performance. And uh, when we started working on Starkware, Ethereum was doing, I don't know, something like 10 transactions a second. And it's not doing much more today. And in fact, the, the way it's increased transactions is, is not by any fundamental improvements to the technology. Okay, and, and so the, the basic challenge there is the following. It's not, there isn't any fundamental problem in, in, in hardware or software that prevents the given computer from doing more than 10 transactions a second, as we know we can do. There are monster machines that can do much more. But if the requirement is to run a monster machine, then maybe Alejandro and Uri can't participate in the network because we're hobbyists and we want to run our laptop in the kitchen, and that's all we want to see. So in order to get decentralization and permissionlessness, in order not to exclude uh, participants, you need to, to keep the, the hardware requirements and software requirements of the network very, very low. Okay, so this is essentially a social construct. It's a social decision. Um, but that limits the throughput of the network. So that's the problem that we're hoping to solve. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that real quick. So let's double click on that. What ended up being the business model of Starkware? How do, how do you guys make money? So the, the, uh, we started out with uh, StarkX, which is a, a SaaS business model, where we basically think of us as a compression service. So entities that previously were interacting directly with the blockchain, uh, now we sort of compress with our technology, we compress their transactions and write the compressed product onto the blockchain. We've uh, uh, reduced the cost per transaction by anywhere ranging from 700x to 20,000x. And when I tell people that, I, you know, I say that, you know, the first time I explained this to my kids, you know, I tried to explain to them that just sort of impress this upon them, that it's not many times in life that you walk into sort of a situation where you get to improve something by 20,000x. In fact, 10x is quite fun and 100x is 
pretty rare. And 20,000, sort of, I'm unaware of, you know, too many examples of that. And this is like a step function in technology, and this is exactly enabled by zero knowledge proofs. So, so that's uh, uh, so the initial sort of business model was uh, uh, Stark X, which is a SaaS business model. And then a couple of years ago, we started working on StarkNet, which is our layer two network. And that's been on mainnet for a good number of months now. And um, actually, today, uh, Chiro 1.0, which is the underlying language, the programming language that we developed to power all of this is coming out. And so there's a, a ton of excitement around the capabilities that this uh, platform brings. Uh, early uh, February, we had uh, StarkWare sessions in Tel Aviv. 800 people from all over the world showed up. And you know, wow. this is Tel Aviv, this isn't Paris. So, so I, was, I was sort of blown away by the excitement and the energy. And, and it's all sort of authentic, like, like the core unit is, is a lone developer or a duo of you know, young developers who are just excited by the software stack and eager to build all sorts of exciting applications that they couldn't up till now on blockchains. And now given the capability of StarkNet, it suddenly becomes a reality. Now, now in this case, I mean, you guys have raised quite a bit of money. How much money have you guys raised for the company so far? North of $200 million, actually. Yeah. And obviously now, you know, this is not your first rodeo, so you've been at it for a while. You know, you've been able to uh, also uh, experience and exchange with different investors. So I guess, why did you choose the people that you decided to choose uh, for this journey? Uh, and uh, also, how have you seen to the expectations shift from one cycle to the next. So when we went out to raise our seeds in January of 2018, um, it was sort of funny because this was like, the, in retrospect, this was the tail end of the 2017 bubble, meaning it was sort of deflating, but people only a few months later sort of fully realized that, you know, that, that was sort of the market going down. Um, and that was right after a few projects raised like absurd amounts of money of via ICOs, uh, like hundreds of millions of dollars. And we were talking to a bunch of, of, of VCs and sort of on, on the first date, we said, you know, we're not thinking of, of, of issuing, uh, you know, doing an ICO and all that. And they said, that's terrific. And on the second date, they, they sort of said, well, you know, why not actually? And, and to us, it made no sense. And I think this was, and I'll explain why, but I, well, the why is actually easy. It's, it's from our perspective, that was like the equivalent of going public before. It's not before you've reached profitability. It's going public before you have a product. And, and going, pro, you know, going public is sort of introduces an awful lot of noise into a startup's uh, sort of psyche. And, and we thought, you know, the sensible thing is actually first build the, te the tech stack, you know, put out products. And when the time comes, uh, consider, maybe, maybe not having a token to, to coordinate the activity of that decentralized network. And so that ruled out a bunch of folks. We were fortunate enough to find uh, a bunch of investors who actually were very excited by the power of the technology and the promise of the technology and the fact that, you know, that uh, Ellie, with his vast experience and sort of thought leadership in the field, uh, was the one pushing this forward. So we raised a, a seed round of $6 million in January of 2018. Um, now the fact that, that we were, you know, we'd been working together, we, we'd known one another sort of going back to our formative years and this sort of dynamic of VCs saying, well, why not an ICO and all that? You know, if it's, if the co-founder is someone you met at a meetup two weeks ago, it's, I think 
looking back on that, it's it's far more difficult to say, this is not what I want to do. This is not the company I want to build. No, thank you. And it's when it's someone you've known since the age of 18 and, you know, went through all sorts of uh, slept in tents and all sorts of stuff, it's, it becomes trivial. You sort of look at one another and say, you know, this this makes no sense. I want to know. Let's move on. And so we went for proper equity funding, essentially, uh, over and over again. And, um, and that's proved out to be a very effective filter for those investors who share our sort of time horizons, if you will, meaning we're optimizing for the long term. And in this regard, we've been very fortunate uh, with the investors we've brought on board. Extremely yeah, because they always, the investors, they always have their own limited partners that are the investors in their fund and their theses, and they put all types of pressure tactics on founders too, so that they can exit and so that they can return back the money to investors with the return. So I can totally see the approach of betting on people that you know are more on the long term and that are going to be there with you in the journey and that really care about you and the project. So I can I can totally get that now. Quick question here, talking about vision, because obviously with those investors, you had to really share the vision. So imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of this project is fully realized. What does that world look like? Oh, that's a beautiful question. So oddly enough, it looks exactly like this world, except meaning that the... The lives we lead are essentially the same. Uh, we use the same apps, and we have smartphones in our pockets, and and we you know we 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 do all the things we do today, except for two fundamental underlying like like silent. Well, I, I should say this: silent till it matters, right? And then it becomes loud to the point of possibly sort of threatening your existence, uh, without relying. Uh, nearly as much, and I'm not naive to say without relying at all, but without relying nearly as much on centralized entities and with far, far better control over your own data. Okay, so so you own uh, your data, you, you, you hold custody of your assets, uh, you know, um, <clears throat> this is Silicon Valley Bank, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, Silvergate, yeah, uh, et cetera, right? Uh, all these guys. Yeah. Um, so you, you, you have custody of your assets, you own your data in the sense that maybe I want to share my shoe purchases with advertisers, but not my uh, t-shirt purchases. Okay. And most importantly, you are not reliant on any centralized entity um, in a way that we can see. Now, that does not mean there aren't any centralized entities, okay? It does mean, though, that in that world, Facebook may run monster machines for all sorts of computations, but you and I, with a computational power that's in our pockets, on our phones, we can verify the integrity of that computation. And that's, that's quite remarkable, meaning shifting the balance of power between individuals and these centralized entities in a way that empowers the individual, uh, that would be sort of the major change uh, in that world. I love that. Now, we've been talking about the future, so let's talk about the past, but doing it with a lens of reflection. So if you were able to go back in time and go back in time and have a chat with your younger self, maybe that younger you know, self that is in MIT, already knowing that wants to start a business, but you know, needs that, that, that push. Imagine you were able to 
give that younger Yuri one piece of advice before launching a business? What would that be and why, given what you know now? So, you know, it's advice I, I unfortunately can give myself today, but I won't, or I give others today, but I still, I still don't fully heed. So, so I'm far better at dispensing advice than acting on it, but um, I would have tried to um, keep a healthier balance, uh, you know, work-life balance. I'm still not very good at that. Um, I, I, I and my family, we pay a price for that. Um, I would have tried f- far better. I, I would have tried. I don't know if I would have succeeded to to uh, separate my identity from my, you know, my current project. Right? And, and, and an old friend of mine who's an entrepreneur said the problem with entrepreneurs is that, you know, our vocation is tied so intimately to our identity. You know, is yeah. it the project that failed? Is it me that failed? And that's given me a lot of heartburn over the years. So I, I would have tried to sort of decouple that. Now, I, I'm fortunate enough to work with Ellie these past five years. He's far better at, at both these things. So I just sort of look at him and try and emulate these uh, these dimensions. I love that. You know, I love this uh, uh, last point because I think that founders, they lose power uh, when they are completely attached to the company. Uh, and uh, ultimately, the fact that your project failed, it doesn't mean that you're a failure. It's just the project failed. That's it. And uh, I I couldn't agree more with the importance of being able to detach yourself from the project because ultimately you will be more effective in the long run. So, so really, yeah. thank you for sharing that. I thought that was really profound. Now, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? I, I sort of disengaged from Twitter and realized that's not helping my mental health. Um, so I guess they can reach out over LinkedIn or email. Um, my email is uri at starkware.co. So happy to sort of connect with people. See if I know you can help in any way. Amazing. Well, Uri, thank you so, so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.